Mr. Robot Season 3 has not yet started, but we're still just getting started here, booting up our Mr. Robot podcast on Post Show Recaps. Hello, everybody. I am Josh Wiggler. I am joined here by my friend who is going to be driving us along a quickened robot road today, Antonio Mazzaro. Antonio, how are you, friend? There are no shortcuts on Robot Road, Josh. There are no shortcuts. No, I'm doing great. How are you? This is fun. I, Mr. Robot, it's back, Josh. It's back. It's back. It's back. It's almost back. Mr. Robot returning for its third season on October 11th. Tons of podcasting in that regard coming your way here on Post Show Recaps as Antonio and I are getting back into the robot grind of it all. We are also teaming up with The Hollywood Reporter. Very exciting for yes. our podcasts this year. So that's going to be really fun, a collaboration between THR and PSR as we are covering all things robot with tons of podcasts, with interviews with the cast and crew. It's going to be a fun time, so you can follow all of that action over at The Hollywood Reporter. It's THR.com slash MRRobot. And for post-show recaps to subscribe to the podcast, it's postshowrecaps.com slash MRRobot iTunes. Did I get it? Was that it? You, you nailed it. Yeah. Your subscriptions at postshowrecaps.com slash iTunes are super great uh, because they help us move up the iTunes charts. If you want to leave a review, that would be fantastic. If you're new to this, you can go to postshowrecaps.com slash iTunes. We have extensively covered, Josh, haven't we, the first two seasons of Mr. Robot? We got a lot. We've talked about every single episode of Mr. Robot up to this point. Our season one coverage was done after season one had already aired. So those podcasts are split into two sections, the spoiler-free section and then the much-beloved spoiler section that involved some great spoiler music that we no longer get to use, which is the saddest part about our Mr. Robot <laughs> podcasting experience. But still, it was fun. It was a great time. Robot Road was a great series of podcasts that is pretty evergreen, I think. So go back and give that a listen if you are so inclined. But today, we are bringing you our second of two preview podcasts before the third season of Mr. Robot premieres. And And in our first episode of our preview, we just kind of talked about Mr. Robot generally and really the things that you really do need to know heading into season three. Full spoiler alert in terms of season one and season two material was completely covered in that podcast. Today will be similar in that regard. It will be the exact same in the regard of spoilers. We are talking without any sort of restrictions about everything that happened in the first season of the show and everything that happened in the second season of the show. Uh, And we are going to use that to guide our conversation here. But what exactly are we doing on this second preview podcast, Antonia? We're going to hit some of the scenes that are, we feel, must-watch scenes, either either from uh, the standpoint of how the show presents itself uh, or things that are important to the mythology of the show or just scenes that we really feel are going to be vital for the story of the show going into season three. The things we're tracking, the open ends, the things that have been the ongoing meta story of Mr. Robot. So we're going to highlight some scenes from both seasons of Mr. Robot that we think are worth rewatching before you get into season three. Of course, if you're up for it, you can rewatch both seasons of Mr. Robot if you're an Amazon Prime member streaming right now. But if you don't have time for that or you just want to watch some key scenes, we're going to try to highlight some of the very important things, both from the way Mr. Robot is as a show and what is really we feel important to the story. 
Yeah, no, I think that this is great because not everybody is going to have the chance to go and rewatch every single episode of the show like you did, Antonio. You you bravely traveled into that world. You savagely took down the rewatch. Not everybody is going to be able to do that. But I do think that we are coming up with a hit list of scenes that you can go back and you can watch. And it'll it'll familiarize you. It'll re-familiarize you with the world of Mr. Robot. I think we're talking about a lot of scenes that are that are both fun and informative. Some of them are just straight up fun. Uh, and not necessarily informative on a story level, but I think uh, many of these scenes are going to really give you, uh, they're going to help key you in on some of the most important beats of what's going on in the plot of Mr. Robot. Uh, So I'm very excited to dig in. Without further ado, should we just hop into this thing? Where do you want to start, Antonio? How about we begin at the beginning, Josh? Is that usually a good place to start somewhere? Let's start at the beginning. Yes, a very (laughs) good place to start indeed. Uh, The very first scene of Mr. Robot ever. Hello, friend, indeed. Hello, friend. Hello, friend, indeed. Yeah, you're very different, Josh. So I think this is a scene that really resonates with you. It resonates deeply within me. No, I love the first scene of Mr. Robot so much. And I think that this is a great example of what we're saying in terms of this first scene of Mr. Robot, which if you don't remember, it starts off, you're, you're in blackness, you do not see anything, it is pure dark, and you're hearing Rami Malek's words for the first time, and he is talking to you. You are his friend. He breaks the fourth wall, and he speaks directly to us. And we go from that into a, into a little place called Rohit's Coffee Shop shop uh, where Elliot is making his first bust of the series where he is bringing somebody down somebody who is involved in some illicit activities and you start to get a sense of how Elliot works and what his interests are and what his moral alignment is like and how far he is willing to go and what he is capable of to bring down somebody who just does bad things and it's also a social exercise it's his you know right. it's his way of you know he does not really talk to people very often he's AFK he's, just, he's AFK he is, he is AFK for the first time in a long while. And I often say, um, when people have asked me, is Mr. Robot worth getting into? I will tell people, watch the full first episode. And if that episode does not grab you, I don't think that Mr. Robot is ever going to grab you. If you escape this first episode and you are not just hooked in, I don't think you're ever going to be hooked in. I think that this is a pilot that really shows you everything you need to know about this show tonally, structurally, in terms of uh, the character work that's going to be accomplished on this show, the acting, the music, the way it's shot. If these are things that are going to be attractive to you, you're going to get all of that in this first episode. And if you're just not really sure, you're probably never going to fall into it. But I would refine it even further and say, for me, I was hooked by this first scene instantly. I was just magnetically drawn into the vortex of Mr. Robot. I think it was the same way for you. Yeah, it's like morphine in a way. Uh, it's funny because I, my mom has not, she has not watched all of Mr. Robot. She knew that I was in the middle of rewatching a lot of it and, and was interested. She, well, what is that show? I, should I watch that show? And I said, well, here's what we're going to do. We're going to watch the first five minutes and you tell me if you want to watch that show. And as soon as that first scene was over, she was all in. She said, I have to watch this now. I'm in. Like, this is incredible. And you're right. It is, it, it's the mix of things it's the music it's the pacing it's the way that first scene in ron's coffee shop with rohit builds where elliot is telling him like i know all these things and and elliot the the music is building as elliot's walking out and saying that's one thing you've got wrong about me i don't give a shit about the money and he puts his hood up and he walks out just as the cops are walking in and we get that very first of, of many great mr robot title cards that comes up and that's the that's a big hit right there right at the beginning of the show and and it is just it's it's all of it you're right 
it's not just that, but it's the acting. It's Rami Malek's eyes, the way he's bugging out in that scene and basically saying, I'm very different. I get it. And, and telling him, like, I knew everything about you. And he's talking in this, this hacker speak, and he's talking about the part of his brain that won't let good things exist. And he's talking about how he used to talk to his dad, and that was the only person he could really relate to, but he died. Company's fine, though. So it's not only establishing the character and the way the show presents itself, but it's setting up a lot of what we come to learn about Elliot. Yeah, he's talking to us, his friend that he's created out of nowhere. And we know this guy's got some daddy issues and this guy has some social issues and this guy's a really skilled hacker. So it's not only establishing all these story things about the show, but it's really showing what the show can. I mean, I don't know how Mr. Robot was sold or anything, but if they had just shot this scene as a teaser, I have a feeling they could have got a series order out of it. It's that good of a scene. It's that like hooking of a scene. It's really, really, really impressive. Yeah, so if you're doing, you know, a mini robot road and you're going back through key moments of the entire series to kind of get yourself amped up or refamiliarized before season three rolls out, I do recommend this one uh, because, like you said, there actually is like a good amount of plot info that's baked into this very first scene that does pay off further down the line as you're continuing to explore the world of this universe uh, of this show. Uh, but beyond that, I think it's really just fun to see just how well developed and like just how like spectacularly formed this show was from the jump. I think it's just an impressive thing to take in. And if you're trying to like really kind of reset the tone for yourself of Mr. Robot, you really can't do much better than just going all the way back to the start. Um, so I think that this, this first scene of the entire series very much deserves a place on this list. Uh, we're moving chronologically, Antonio. Where do we want to move to next for our second scene? Let's go to season one, episode four. And this is Elliot's hallucination, hallucination sequence. And this is the Damon's episode, Josh. The episode that talks uh, Damon's demons, if you want to use those two things as synonymous. Uh, Elliot is going through some horrible morphine withdrawals and he goes to this extended dark hallucination sequence dark in terms of seeing Elliot get shot which as we know is something that happens on the show later a uh, dark is, is in terms of the the opium den that he ends up in the trap house it's just uh, a lot of really crazy dark things happening but there's also a lot of very fascinating looks inside Elliot's head at what's happening with Elliot and Angela the way he views her the way he sees his role in their relationship and the two of them that I think continue to play out on this show and we're doing so even at the end of season two so i think this is an interesting look at what elliot is observing or or hallucinating when he's going through these withdrawals yeah are you my monster yeah what's your monster right what's like, your monster <laughs> yeah we don't know at the time as we're watching it for the first time that elliot is encountering his sister darlene but we see this young girl as elliot's walking up to what appears to be his boyhood home that just is an, uh, a 404 error that is not really present uh, and he's not sure what's happening I mean, he's asking himself a lot of questions that we later will realize okay he's he's thinking a lot about mr robot the fact that he's got his own secret the fact that these things are going on but i I think there are a lot of for those people who theorize that there maybe is something more with Elliot in play, which we as viewers don't know everything about Elliot in terms of he's a little bit like Jesus and that he emerges fully formed. Uh, we know about him till he turns age nine or so. And then we don't really know anything about Elliot from nine until about six months before the five nine hack. So it's very fascinating to see some of these blanks be filled in by what's deep inside Elliot's psyche. And yeah, seeing young Darlene on her tricycle is fascinating. Sing Frere Jaca, which 
Elliot later reveals is something that he remembers that she used to do when he actually remembers that Darlene was his sister. So there's that. There's also this weird stuff with the fish, Josh, with QWERTY. I was going to say that the entire reason to go back and watch the hallucination sequence is just to hear Keith David as QWERTY the fish saying, move me, for, move me to the goddamn window. Yeah, that's the best thing you could do for a fish uh, whose life is in a fish tank. Move him to a window. There's a lot. That's really great. The the Keith David cameo. Like, it's just fa- it's fantastic that that is in the show. But Angela is it cuts right from that to Angela eating some form of QWERTY at the romantic dinner that Angela and Elliot are having at all safe somehow. Like, it's a candlelit they're sitting in cubicles uh, it's uh it's very very weird what's going on in this hallucination and the thing about that is josh i'm not sure if there elliot keeps finding a key in this in this stuff now that could just be elliot the key to elliot's understanding is understanding that elliot is mr robot and he's thinking of this key the whole time or there could be more meaning to that. I'm not sure that we fully figured that out. Angela interprets the key when Elliot accidentally eats it as a ring that Elliot is using to propose to Angela. So there's just there's just a lot of weird stuff going on in the sequence that I'm not sure we've really fully. This is like the House of the Undying, Josh, from Game of Thrones. From the books, not the not the TV show. From the show. books, not the TV show, yeah. which is just a garbage yeah, important nothing. important distinction. I think yeah. also it's a good scene to revisit, just as a reminder that we we. You know, Elliot a, is, a, is a really troubled individual. You know, he has a lot on his plate. Certainly, we know he's got the two different personalities that are at war with one another. Um, but this is also a guy who is, you know, he was a drug addict. Uh, and it's been a long time since we've looked at Elliot that way, I think. Um, and I think it, it could not hurt to remember that that is a big part of this character as we first met him, that he was, uh, you know, he was really, uh, he, he wouldn't even really fully own up to it, I don't think. But he was a morphine addict or at least he would he would be like a really calculated morphine addict where he would have countermeasures to help with withdrawal and to you know help keep him balanced out we are a long way away from that but you never know when something like that might rear its head again in the future so i think just as a character note it's worth refreshing yeah and tyrell wellick pops up in this as well and tyrell wellick is just sitting in elliot's apartment with a key in his hand and we don't know why he's there we don't know if that speaks to some deeper relationship and keep in mind this is only episode four of the show so elliot has had a couple of interactions with tyrell but there has been a lot of speculation in, in, in with the first two seasons and with some of the other scenes we're going to talk about i think today that maybe elliot and tyrell have met each other or have interacted more at least than we have seen on screen so it's interesting that tyrell is in that scene with qwerty sitting in elliot's apartment with a key in his hand for some weird reason which we don't know and then of course elliot is also confronting the the f society mask the uh, the discreet charm of the bourgeoisie mask and putting it on and saying he's alone and he's almost admitting to himself that he's mr robot in this hallucination and he's afraid of being alone and when he wakes up he thinks everyone has gone and left him there to rot in his withdrawals and mr robot is there saying oh i'm not going to leave you kiddo and so it, it is an interesting thing that elliot in his his deepest moments maybe needs mr robot and is uh, is is realizing on his in his deepest levels that he is mr robot that the key to uh, what elliot needs is inside him this whole time and that's a fascinating to think the thing to think about because we've seen these moments in in season two where elliot is mind awake body asleep and will he ever wake up from a lot of the moments where mr robot is taking over uh, and so the idea that elliot knows that he's mr robot and can be controlled by mr robot even when he's not fully aware of it is present in this hallucination so i think that's something to to track for sure as well 
What's the third scene we are going to talk about here, Antonio? I don't even want to talk about this one, Josh. I think it's important. <laughs> I think it's important that we hit it. But man, on the rewatch, I, it was such a gut punch, even though I knew it was happening. It's uh, the end of season one, episode six, Brave Traveler. This is the episode where Elliot has, has, is forced to free Fernando Vera from prison. Fernando Vera, the horrible drug dealer, kingpin, criminal mastermind, who's not very smart, but is very crazy, who is a abusive of Elliot's would-be girlfriend Shayla and has kidnapped her and and it demands ultimately that he be freed from prison before he lets Shayla go and Elliot is forced to go through all that and then he frees Vera from prison Vera gets out and he's talking to Elliot and he says some unfortunate things to Elliot he talks about the wild savagery of the world he kills his brother when Elliot is standing there and then when Elliot asks where Shayla is Elliot comes to quickly realize that Shayla's been with Elliot the whole time dead in the trunk of the car it's tough it's a it's a really 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 brutal scene uh that has never fully sat right with me but i think that's got to be part of the point this is not something that you <laughs> you know that should not this none of this should sit well with anybody uh but it's it's a very very brutal it's the it's the first real bloodletting of the series i remember you and i talking about a lot when we got to this point on robot road as we were talking through this episode where this is like really you know we haven't lost any main characters up to this point uh this is our first true main character death and it really is spawned from elliot's actions you know he did not directly kill her uh but his actions led to her death and i think that this is uh you know it's a it's a micro example of sort of the macro horror that elliot alderson unknowingly is going to unleash upon the world through the five nine hack so i think on that on that level alone this is an important scene to go back and and watch but it also might be important just to just to remind yourself what fernando vera looks like uh we have not seen this character since this scene he goes his separate ways after the prison break and we have not checked in with him at all since then got to imagine that that character factors back into mr robot at some point at some you know juncture down the line could be season three could be four or five who knows where we're going to go with any of that but just in case just in case and also just to like really remind yourself that uh we root for elliot you know he is our hero he is the guy that we want to see succeed we certainly want to see him win out over mr robot specifically but he's also led to some bad things his actions have had really dark terrible you know life-ending consequences for people and i think it's worth reminding yourself about that by going back and watching this very horrifying you know like really jarring scene that's just shot brilliantly the camera lingering as long as it does on elliot in the in the thick of the realization that oh my god she's dead uh and just like really forcing you to be in the horror with him in that moment it's just it's really really excellently done Brilliant work by Rami Malek. I don't know what episode he submitted for the Emmys, but he won, right? So this is fantastic acting work and a great example of what he's able to do in season one with coming to grips with everything you were just talking about, with the things, the problems that Elliot can cause and the deep things that he gets into. This only happened because of him. If Vera's only in the picture, as we find out at the beginning of the next episode, because Elliot demanded Suboxone, because he demanded withdrawal medication so that he could 
pretend that he wasn't an, a morphine addict. As you were talking about earlier, it's easy to forget that that was something that Elliot struggled with, and maybe he wouldn't want to talk about it. But it's a real thing. And Shayla's death is really, truly on his hands in more ways than one. And this is certainly something that he carries around with him through the course of season one and into season two. He puts himself in jail, Josh, in a large part because of his crimes. And yes, he isn't to blame for all of them because he has problems. Mr. Robot takes over and Elliot puts himself in this position. But this internal struggle, I don't think it's ever there's never so deadly and and horribly real a bow put on it than we see at the end of this scene in season one, episode six. So it's really good. And like you said, yeah, Vera's out there as a loose end. He says, like Cain after Abel, I'll be a fugitive and wander around the earth, you know, brave fugitive, brave wanderer. And he, he kills his own brother and he says his operation is over. But we know, Josh, that the FBI at least knows that Shayla had connections to Elliot and is deceased. The FBI knows that. Now, whether or not they're working with local authorities, whether or not they've put together that Elliot was probably responsible for that jailbreak, if that's something they want to hang on him, or if they want to lay at someone like Darlene's feet, knowing that they've already had Darlene in and showed her all of the horrible things right in front of her face on that map, I don't know. But that's a major criminal loose end from the Elliot Alderson story as well. This is a thing that happened. She died because of him. Another guy was dead at that scene. And a lot of probably bad people got out of jail as a result of what happened. So I don't know if that's something they'll hang on Elliot or if he's even come to grips with the consequences of that or if we'll see more of that in the seasons to come. But it's certainly a loose end for sure. All right. Next scene up, our fourth scene, is the introduction of a favorite character of ours, but also just beyond that, uh, somebody who I think we can agree is a pivotal player on the board in the form of White Rose. The introduction of White Rose in the fittingly named episode, White Rose, episode eight of season one. Yes, White Rose, episode eight of season one. I think probably my favorite episode of season one, if I'm being honest, because this is there's just a lot of ground that's covered in this episode. It begins with Angela and Darlene at the ballet studio. We have not at the time realized that these two characters know each other. So it's it's a it's a real even though it's not the most uh, it's not the most like it's a huge gut punch of a cold open, even though not a lot's happening. These two people are just talking about ballet and New Jersey transit and hoping that Elliot's okay. But the idea that they're talking at all is massive. And then by the end of the episode, Elliot has realized that Darlene is his sister. And that throws the whole thing. Not only that Darlene is his sister, but then that Mr. Robot is his dad. And Mr. Robot shows up at the door and says that we should talk, you know. And But in the middle of all that, Elliot is meeting with this character that we've heard about for several episodes now we've seen in irc chats with the dark army we've heard people talking about white rose and white rose and we need to talk to white rose and then we meet josh bd wong as white rose i did not even realize it was bd wong at least the first time i watched this maybe not even the second time i watched it until i really looked deeper into it did i realize it was even bd wong fantastic scene and a scene that now that we know not only what bd wong and white rose have gotten into in season two but knowing that that white rose and bd wong especially are they're they're in the main cast of mr bd wong is in the main cast of mr robot for season three so this is a major character and this is her first scene on the show and it's it's not only that it's a great scene yeah, I think that you'll find as we're going through this podcast and going through this list that there's going to be a decent amount of White Rose on here. So I don't think we need to spend a ton of time on her specifically here, other than to say uh, 
pivotal player, clearly involved at the, you know, at the very, very heart of whatever the meta story of Mr. Robot is. Yes. And I think focusing on that character and reminding yourself of the stakes of what White Rose is involved in and White, Ro- White Rose's uh, main opponent, Philip Price, is another character we'll get into in, in more specific detail in just a little bit. These are characters that I think that you don't necessarily remember quite as well as like, you'll remember the Rami Malek scenes for the most part. You'll remember the scenes with Elliot because he's the most recognized face of the franchise of course um but there are there are season two really moved the needle in the regard of there are a lot of other characters that are in play here that are profoundly important to the story that sam esmail and his writers are telling uh so just reminding yourself of how white rose first came into the picture i think is important to do and it's also just a terrific scene you know yeah. it's got a, it's got a ticking clock element to it so you know me as a 24 fan i'm going to be thrilled with that uh but just the the whole like you know the way that the the language which bounces back and forth between Elliot yes. and White Rose. If there's that word again, wait, you know, just the, you know, the economics of time. Uh, it's, it's a really spectacular display of that idea. Well, and up until this point, we've seen Elliot be fantastically involved in everything and being in influential and in control of a lot of scenes and being the person, the man with the plan, if you will. Elliot walks into this room and in at no point is Elliot in control of that conversation. He gets summarily dismissed for almost three minutes straight by White Rose. And, and it's, you're right. The pacing of it is phenomenal. So it's interesting to see that power dynamic emerge. It's the only scene in the series, Josh, between Elliot and White Rose. Two of our most major characters only have one scene. And White Rose says this will be the only scene. This is the only time you're ever going to meet me. And you know what? That's not going to matter. So that is established that, that White Rose is never interested in meeting with Elliot again. And this is it. And White Rose's fixation with time is also established in this scene where not only is it the three minutes and I'm not going to meet with you again. And there are very few people who I'll talk to more than once. But White Rose is also saying, Elliot, like you hack people. I hack time. This is what I do. I control time. And you only have three minutes of mine. And that's it. So it, it not only is establishing the character of White Rose, but showing her in control of that scene against Elliot and showing her fixation of being in control and not even seeing Elliot as someone worth meeting with again is, is fascinating when we consider what we know about season two, which we'll get into some of that for sure. I do think an important note to make in that exchange is I believe White Rose says to Elliot, you will never see me again. Yes, uh, that's a good but point. That's not to say White Rose won't see Elliot again, and certainly not to say that Elliot wouldn't meet Minister Zhang at some point in the future. Uh, so there's you know a lot of, uh, I think, it's, it's open-ended to a degree, and I can't imagine that we will get through all of Mr. Robot without one more scene between Elliot and White Rose. Yeah, I would hope so. But you're right. They could be, we could see, we, who knows if there's Elliot and Mr. Ro, as El, Elliot as Mr. Robot or a, a White Rose as Minister Zhang. This is a show where a lot of people have different roles and different lives and they're living out these different things that they're going through. So who knows if these two characters will meet in another way. And maybe it's possible that they met before. We don't know that for sure. Elliot could have forgotten. There, there's a lot of possibilities with that as well. And the show, because there is circular storytelling, and because the show does go back and I know there's going to be at least one scene where we talk about this and sometimes show us more of a sequence from a different point of view then there's possible we'll learn more about Elliot and White Rose uh, but this is a great great scene for sure one of my favorites the whole series 
All right. Well, that's a great transition into this next thing that we're going to talk about. And whether it's your favorite of the whole series or not, I think that this is the turnkey scene of the series. I think that this is probably the most important scene of the series. It's episode nine of season one. It's Elliot at the graveyard. He is on effectively a vision quest, though he doesn't fully know it yet, where he has learned that Mr. Robot is his father. He remembers that this is what his father looks like. And Edward Alderson is taking him back through Elliot's childhood home and they wind up at a graveyard together and it's here where it's revealed that Edward Alderson is deceased and this man who Elliot has been referring to as Mr. Robot is none other than Elliot himself. He even has the great line of, you're going to make me say it, aren't you? Yes. I am Mr. Robot. I am Queens Boulevard. So we get that, <laughs> we get that great line from Elliot here and I think that you know this is the whole crux of the whole show. Uh, up to this point, there's a lot of clues along the way and I think a lot of people were anticipating some sort of twist like this even in the first watch um, but it's so rewarding on the rewatch but I think that up to this moment, you don't really have this fully, fully clear. But the idea of duality and relying on, you know, this this other side of yourself and being at war with other sides of yourself, just internal conflict is so central to Mr. Robot. And it's literalized here in this scene between this conflict between Elliot and this other side of himself that we're now, if not fully understanding, we're certainly understanding in a more profound way than we have up until this moment. Right. And we see Mr. Robot in a mode when you talk about this duality, which we often don't see from Mr. Robot in season two. This is the loving Edward Alderson. I, I tried to protect you. I wanted to tell you sooner. Don't let them take us away. They're not going to break us apart again. I will always be with you. And I love you. He's telling him I will never leave you alone again is the last thing he says to him. And then he collapses on his own grave and he's gone. And you're right. There is that great moment where where Elliot basically says to us you knew all along didn't you so that is also it, it, i think elliot's communication with the viewer showing that the show is aware that people are guessing at a lot of these twists or guessing at these things that are hiding in plain sight that plays out with the prison twist in season two and it might may pay, play out with other things in season three or four or beyond this is a show that understands its viewers and Elliot understands his friend. And he's upset with us for that reason, by the way. This is something that he takes out on us with the prison sequence. But we knew all along. There's also the great moment where Elliot is saying, this can't be happening. This can't be happening. This can't be happening, which is a great contrast to this is happening. This is happening. This is happening, which is what he says in the pilot. So there is that duality, not only with the characters, but also in Elliot himself with his own words and with the way he treats us and with us as viewers being part of Elliot, but being separate from Elliot, that this is all in microcosm in this scene. It's fantastic. It's also really great thematically what you just brought up, the it's happening, it's happening, it's happening, contrasted against... The- this can't be happening. This can't be happening. This is an idea that's very much in play in Mr. Robot as we're leaving season two. And you got to imagine it's going to be a big deal in season three. This idea of the horror at what you've done and the horror at what's going on and the disbelief over your own actions. And can I undo that? Uh, you know, that's going to be the, the next step. I wonder is like, this didn't happen. This didn't happen. Uh, I undid this from happening. I undid the happening. Uh, I think that that's going to be really fascinating 
interesting to kind of track that idea. I don't know that we'll necessarily get that reflected in dialogue, but I think what you're hitting on here is where we are thematically in the show right now, where Mobley and Trenton are ending season two openly debating, can we put this, you know, can we write this wrong? And Elliot very much feeling a similar way. Yeah, got um, shot for it. You know what yeah, I mean? Got shot yeah. trying to prevent it or trying to press press the reset button. Yeah, so I think yeah. that the graveyard scene just great to to remind yourself of how all of that played out. It's just a spectacular scene, um, and it's I do think it's it's the it's the most pivotal scene. It's the look. It's like the you know I'm I don't want to spoil other shows, but there are certain shows, perhaps ones we've already even referenced in this podcast, that have like big defining moments in their first season that completely upend the apple cart or the red wheelbarrow, as it may be. Uh, and in this case, that's this moment. I mean, when you're going through the first season of the show and you're trying to sell somebody on the concept of Mr. Robot, you're trying really hard to protect that secret that Christian Slater is also the guy. He's also Elliot. Like, that's the same person. You just don't want to tip that off. That's the spoiler for season one. And now it's just essential. It's just essential information as you're trying to process Mr. Robot moving forward. So very cool moment. Very important moment. Let's get to our last moment of season one, uh, which is also... The last moment of season one. Ah, see what you did there. Yeah, and a scene that I think some people might have missed on their first watch through, uh, or if they're only if they haven't really been invested in the show to understand that this existed. It's the, it's a stinger. It's a post credit scene or a mid credit scene at the very least. Josh between White Rose as as Minister Zhang in in male mode, BD Wong and and Philip Price, the CEO of E Corp, who we've only really come to sort of know right at the end of season one. We're starting to see more of him. He had a couple of short interactions with what he calls Tyrell, uh, Tyrell Wellick, but he he's really had these creepy interactions with Angela at the end of season one as she's been become part of e-corp so we're, we're meeting this guy for the real first time at the end of season one and then at the end of the last episode of season one we see this crazy scene between philip price and white rose that pulls the curtain back that makes you look at the five nine hack and all of the events of season one with i think a very different view because philip price is not he's a little annoyed it seems like at the hack that seemingly took down his entire company but it's just one piece of business on an agenda between these two guys who seem to be the one percent of the one percent that elliot has been talking about this entire time it's uh it's the illuminati yes <laughs> you yeah. know we are you know this is this is it's the creme de la creme it is the top one percent of the one percent which is uh it's a terrifying prospect to consider and philip price as we'll talk about uh in a later scene this is a guy who really feels like he is the most powerful person on the planet with the exception of maybe one or two different people and you get the feeling that he is sitting across from one of those two other people in this sequence uh it's the big reveal that there that white rose has multiple forms at least two different forms that white rose goes out into the world as uh that's exciting and that leaves you with a real great tease for where things could be going in season two and we still haven't even fully unpacked the ramifications of this scene i think through two seasons of the show no we have not because white rose is saying i know you have your troubles we have other items on our agenda the colton mines we haven't discussed what is that about josh we still don't know what's going 
going on with the Congo? Or as Philip Price says, the fucking Congo can wait. Like, he's just really annoyed. Like, uh, And there's a harp playing Near My God to Thee, which is the song that the band played as the Titanic was sinking. So there's this foreboding, weird sense of, uh, like, just mystique, but also a little bit of dread and heightened unusualness going on in the scene. It's a wonder as well, like, or at least it's disguised that way. So it starts with a sweeping shot over the exterior of this estate and we see a car park and an Asian man get out and walk in the door and the camera does not cut follows us all the way in the door just sweeps around the room and we see this opulent mansion and all these people who look like and smell like money just walking around in there and then we see this fireside chat between Philip Price and White Rose that not only sets up a lot of the stuff for the show but sets up this incredible dynamic which emerges in season two which I know we're going to talk about more on this podcast and seems to be one of the central conflicts of the show from a meta standpoint that we just don't know everything about. We don't really know everything about what these characters' agendas are, what kind of chess they're playing, how many dimensions are involved, 3D, 4D. We don't really know what what games these two are playing against each other. This is the first whiff of it. And I got to say, it's like the the, the smell of bread baking. I want to eat everything that comes up from this scene. It's fantastic. All right, that takes us into season two. Uh, and I think that, you know, we're talking a lot more about season two than season one here in terms of the scenes that I think you need to go back and revisit, largely because season two is so dense. Uh, yes. There's there's so much going on in the more second episodes. season of the show. Yeah. More episodes for one. Uh, the story is just getting more and more complex um, to, the, to the chagrin of many, I do think. <laughs> but uh, to you and I, you and I really enjoyed this season tremendously. Yeah, um, stuff but, your chagrins in a sack. That's what I say. <laughs> but I think... You you know, season one is kind of iconic and I think really memorable and really streamlined and elegant in a way that I don't know that you need to, to really go back and revisit the entirety of the thing. No. But being pretty fresh on the events of season two, that's really going to be important going into season three, I think. Um, so we start with the first scene of season two. Once again, talk us through that, Antonio. Yeah, this is this is the the, the sequence that establishes the, the prison metaphor that Elliot is stuck. And so there's that for sure. But we also have... The 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 whole daydream sequence. We actually see something that has been talked about a ton on Mr. Robot, and that is Elliot ultimately getting pushed out the window by Mr. Robot. And we see all that play out in in really just devastating fashion. We see Elliot in a hospital with Mr. Robot, and we see them talking about everything that's happening there. But the sequence doesn't begin that way. The sequence also begins with what we wanted to know, which is what was going on between Elliot Elliot and Tyrell, and it introduces this idea that we we're we're wondering like what what's happening with Elliot and Tyrell. We see them on the night of the hack. We see it ending with Elliot reaching into the popcorn machine and then probably pulling a gun out on Tyrell. And we don't know how that ends. And then we smash right into that uh, with Elliot, young Elliot, falling into the snow and everything that plays out with that. And then we go into this really well shot, edited stage sequence of the notebook covers Elliot's brain, everything that's happening in his mother's house that ends up looking like it's the prison. And it ends with the title card uh, as his mom slides the open, open the door to his room and says time to get up. So it is a really just a a really fascinating way to begin season two, not only starting with uh, where season one ended ish with what we were wondering about the hack, but then getting us right into this. This is where season two is going to start with Elliot. Why is he in his mom's house? What's happening with these weird memories? Like, what is he doing? And what, what is this room? he's in and it just really takes off from there 
And I think that this first scene of season two, of season two, because it, it does cover so much ground, uh, serves as a shorthand to like get you prepared for like what it was like on the night of the five nine hack. Because you do have that scene between Elliot and Tyrell, uh, you do get to see what that looked like just a little bit, so you know you're reminded of exactly. Oh yeah, there was a plan that was put into place on this evening. Uh, important to remind yourself of that. Really cool to go to this formative moment in Elliot's life that you hear a lot about in the first season, and now you're getting to see the moment that Elliot's father pushed him out the window and he broke his arm and that is in a lot of ways I think uh, you know a shattering moment for Elliot Alderson formative indeed Uh, so I think great to remind yourself of that just a tone setter for season two like if you're doing kind of this season two power watch I think it's it's a it's a good one to 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 put in your arsenal for sure. Yeah, the whole thing is super well paced and it ends really the 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 sequence changes pacing a little bit with Elliot talking to us and saying hello again. Yes, I'm talking to you this time. I wanted you to hear what I told Krista back there, but I'm not ready to trust you yet. Not after what you did. You kept things for me. So it sets up this relationship between the two of us where Elliot has talked about this routine and we're we're seeing all of it. We're seeing the the routine that Elliot's established. He's going through it time by time. We meet Leon, we hear about Seinfeld we see Obama talking about Tyrell Wellick. It's a really fast-paced beginning to season two that ends with Elliot basically saying, well, by the way, I don't trust you, and maybe you can't trust what I just showed you. So I think that sets up a lot of uh, how Elliot can think about us as a character on this show and what that really looks like when, it, when it's Elliot lying to us. It, it jumps right into that from the jump. Yeah, a lot of business being accomplished in that first scene of season two. Indeed. Uh, our, our next scene from season two, um, honestly, I don't know necessarily why this is <laughs> on the list other than I know you and I love this scene. Yes. Is that is that really the only reason why it's here? Yeah, that's the only reason why it's there for me. Like, I don't know about you, but uh, yeah, this is uh, this is the beginning. Now, the season one, the season two, the premiere is in two parts. We have an intermission, essentially, between episode one and episode two. Episode one ends with the chiefs of E-Corp discussing F-Society's latest demand, which is that they pay $5.9 million in cash and bring it to a specific park, uh, and they don't send anybody else. They want one of the chiefs to bring it, and that's it. We see that play out the beginning of Season 2 uh, at Episode 2, and it's fantastic, Josh. This is, uh, so this is Scott Knowles burning the money at F-Society's request. It's probably my favorite scene of the whole series, if I'm being honest. It's spectacular. It's got the Phil Collins booming yes. in the background. Yes. It's got, you know, you're seeing One World Trade in the background, so that's very evocative. And this is such a great New York City show, which is not something that we have talked about enough in these two previews. It's a terrific New York City show, and there are so many New York City shows that are bad New York City shows that I love a good New York City show. Mr. Robot accomplishes that in a really great way, and this scene is really evocative in that regard. Um, and it's just the, the culmination of this music rising as the fire is rising, yes. uh, as Bane would say. Uh, you know, it's just, it's, it's, it's tremendous. The fire rising. Rises. Yeah, it's just <laughs> tremendous. It's great. And and Scott Knowles, not like a you know, a landmark character on this show by any by any stretch of the imagination. Unless you're, unless you're a wine lover. Unless you're your a favorite wine character. Lover. Yeah. yeah, this is the sommelier of Mr. Robot. <laughs> uh, he is you know, he is he's a he's a great character, but he's a side character for sure. Important in the Wellick storyline, um, but not necessarily uh, somebody that you definitely need to remember. You could skip this one if you want, but I think just in terms of some of like the gorgeous um, cinematography of the show and just scene construction. Uh, there's a lot going on in this scene that uh, it's just it's it's fabulous just to remind yourself of what Mr. Robot can can do with just the building of 
tension uh, and to have the building of tension be something that's both uh, kind of nauseating to watch, but then also exhilarating to watch yes. the way the scene plays out. Like it, you know, I, I defy you to not kind of like have a little bit of a smile on your face and just like kind of nodding along to the momentum of the scene. Uh, one of my favorites of the whole series for sure. Yeah, it's just a great reminder of what a really good director Sam Esmail is and how that plays out at the beginning of an episode. What Mr. Robot can do from an exhilaration standpoint, as you said. I mean, I still get chills watching it. It's just really, really, really well staged with the way that it's edited and the way the the, the crowd, just onlookers are being shot in medium, medium close up and you're seeing them watching this happen and the look on Scott Knoll's face as it's playing out, how he looks as he's burning the money just with the eyes through the mask and the smoke and the f- the flames at one point are licking up the freedom like it's just a uh, it's very uh it's a very good scene josh so that's why it's on the list for sure we can move on i'm uh i'm i'm spent i'm exhilarated uh, i i'm i feel i feel like i've got my fill of scott knows now I think it's representative of kind of the world that Mr. Robot is in at that moment too. You know, that's a, it's a great, great representation of the post five, nine universe. Yes, uh, yes. And, and just like watching people standing around and, you know, filming the fire and just kind of gathering around it. And like, this is not the most unusual thing that has been seen in this world since the five, nine hack. Uh, so I think in terms of giving you a taste of what the universe is like at this moment in Mr. Robot. And really, honestly, we're not, we're still pretty much in the belly of that. We're not really that, far away from the culture that is expressed in this scene. So I think that's a that's another reason that this would stand out over some of the other scenes that I'm thinking about from season two that are not on this list, but also demonstrate Sam Esmail's chops and creating tension and really shooting the shit out of a scene, including some action scenes, you know, like the the Dark Army, uh, you know, DDP. Oh, shootout, yeah. Yeah, DDP against Two the shootouts. Dark Army in China, uh, the Dark Army uh, annihilating the, <laughs> the, the restaurant, Cisco's and <laughs> Conspiracy, condiments conspiracy. Condiments conspiracy. So, like, there's, a, you know, you could go and you could watch those scenes if you want to just like add some bonus material to the mix. But I think uh, the 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 world of Mr. Robot is expressed really well in this Scott Knowles scene. So that's another really valuable thing that you're taking away from it. Um, let's move on to another White Rose scene. And speaking of DDP, Dom DiPiero, I believe we are talking about the scene from episode five of season two where Dom and White Rose are going to spend what, like, ten minutes together? Is that about as much time as white rose is willing to a lot it seems like it's about 10 minutes yeah it's a it's an extended scene certainly longer than elliot ever got uh at least that we've seen and it is not necessarily on purpose we don't know we don't really know 100 percent how this scene came into being the minister zhang role of white rose uh, is in play in this episode the, the the fbi has gone to china to look into the background of the five nine hack to try to figure out what role the dark army may have played why they were involved at all like what's happening there and we've seen ddp agent dominic di piero now really emerge as a character who isn't going to play things by the book who is frustrated with the way the fbi is handling certain things and who speaks up and gets on minister zhang's radar in the meeting they're having about how they're going to deal with a lot of the issues they need to deal with she specifically says dark army let's talk about the dark army she brings it up in the meeting and the look on bd wong's face when that happens makes me feel like ddp might not belong for this world and then when ddp sort of stumbles away from the party at Minister Zhang's house that night. She's looking for the bathroom. She ends up, Josh, in a room full of clocks. And that's where this scene really, really kicks off. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a really cool scene. And it's it's just, you know, we're starting to learn, you know, 
we're starting to know White Rose a little bit more. Now we're getting the Minister Zhang component of of this character, and it's just a further fleshing out of Dom. It was the it was the start of a few theories that you and I were wrong about. Uh, me more than you, I think. R.I.P. D.D.P. R.I.P. D.D.D.P. Uh, that never really went anywhere. Um, but it's it's a really cool scene, and it, it does make you wonder. You know what what is some of the what what are the relevant points of this scene? You have that moment where Minister Zhang is talking talking to Dom about alternate realities where the five nine hack didn't exist. And I find the notion, uh, it moves me deeply. Uh, and what is that all about? You know, one of the things that has been bounced back and forth in the conversation about Mr. Robot is, is this a grounded and gritty show? Uh, or is this a show that has, you know, a little bit of a higher concept that is, um, that is, is kind of being like stealthily inserted along the way and i think the jury is still out in that regard are we actually talking about real parallel universes and alternate universes and time travel and uh is is white rose actually hacking time or trying to hack time are these things that we're actually going to deal with on mr robot i'm not sure honestly personally myself uh but i think to to just remind yourself that these are possibilities that are in play uh this scene does some good work in that regard yeah in the previously on for that episode we see the scene of white rose saying you hack people i hack time and then we see the fixation with time being evident with that room full of clocks and then we do see the scene as you're pointing out where white rose or where minister zhang says like there, there's a possibility people believe that there are alternate timelines where the five nine hack didn't happen and i find that whole idea of it fascinating like i find the idea that all these things are possible like just just the the other lives the other people that we've become the contemplation moves me very deeply and then the clock strikes midnight right after that line josh and that scene is ended but we know about and other Dom Di Piero turns into a pumpkin. She does. She becomes a pumpkin because she has red hair and everyone knows that redheaded people turn into pumpkins at midnight. <laughs> That's right. She, uh, she does ultimately that the scene ends awkwardly and she knows. She knows that there's a little bit of a lie told to her in that scene because B.D. Wong is showing her these silken, these these dresses and these beautifully just embroidered and, and Chinese crafted uh, gowns and things that are in this closet and says they belong to my sister. She stays here when she passes through Beijing and we later find out DDP knows that Minister Zhang doesn't have a sister and there are a lot of personal things revealed as you point out with the DDP of it all in this scene but the fixation on the possibility of time and multiple lives and I think that's something that's already in the show to an extent when DDP when when White Rose herself is living as two different people when she's living as White Rose and living as Minister Zhang of course she's fascinated with the possibility of having multiple lives, of being multiple people. And we know that that's present with the Elliot and Mr. Robot character as well. And we've certainly seen Angela live many lives on this show in terms of the many roles that she's occupied. And she's another person who has been fixated on the possibility that you can believe something and, and maybe hopefully can be true. So seeing White Rose in this mode and, and extending herself in this way to DDP, I think it has a lot of White Rose influence here. Like there's a lot of things we can learn about White Rose, but it's also great for the meta of the story, just that the DDP is on to Minister Zhang a little bit, and DDP is aware that maybe Minister Zhang told her a little bit of a lie there, and that was a very personal scene that they had. There, the consequences of re uh, revolution are also talked about in the scene. I think this is a really, really important one. I think this is a fantastic one. 
if you're going to rewatch that you need to hit when you're going back through season two. All right. The next scene we have for you guys is it's really more of like an, a, a, a solid half an episode, at least. Is, yeah. it, is it half an episode? Is it two thirds of an episode? I think episode? it's like 20 minutes. I think it's like 19 or 20 minutes it's a, without a commercial. Well, it has a baked in commercial. But yeah, it's the first it's the first half or or at least third of an episode. It's a really, really uh, compelling sequence. It was jarring AF, uh, jarring ALF, indeed, <laughs> ALF, uh, where we're talking about, <laughs> of course, me. the Miller Boyette of it all, where Mr. Robot goes the sitcom route. and Word up Wednesday. Yes, does the full TGIF. <laughs> uh, and Mr. Robot goes into this very strange land where Elliot, who has just been uh, brutally beaten in what we later learn is his illusory prison world uh, and is recovering from the physical pain, uh, he is allowed to drift off into this place while the Mr. Robot side of his personality deals with the actual physical pain because he can take it. And Elliot, meanwhile, is much more comfortable in this sort of dreamlike state where he is imagining himself as a character on a Friday night sitcom where he is driving on a road trip with his family and there's the laugh track. Alf is literally a character <laughs> in this sequence the 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 late the late uh the late gideon goddard is a police officer here r.i.p so a great final appearance from that character here uh tyrell wellick who has barely been seen this season at all is bound and gagged in the back of the vehicle and eventually run over by a car i believe at one point (laughs) as well there's just a lot going on here and i think it's just it's a it's a fun scene to watch but it's also it's the most extreme example of Mr. Robot leaving the box. Uh, not that there's really a box that Mr. Robot fully fits in comfortably, but this is a real swing for the show that didn't land with everybody, I don't think. I think it landed really well with you and I. And what I like about it is we're you know halfway into season two at the point that this sequence comes about. And we are not halfway through the run of Mr. Robot, if we're lucky at this point. And we're already getting such an extreme sequence structurally um, in terms of what Sam Esmail and his crew are willing to do here that I think it's worth reminding yourself of just like how far outside of the wheelhouse this show is willing to go as we're moving into season three because you really don't know like the sky is the limit at this point if this is happening this early on yeah (laughs) and there's a lot there's a lot going on here because it is mr robot protecting elliot from some horrific things that are happening to elliot at the time so we talked a ton when we podcasted about this about how what are mr robot's real motives here maybe he actually is a decent person maybe he's not this pure unbridled id who wants just to cause chaos maybe he actually wants to protect elliot in on some level and he's there to love him and this does begin this moment of peace between elliot and mr robot where when the sequence ends when they're approaching the hospital mr robot is saying to elliot like i did this for you like this was all for us and the worst is behind you now it's time we get you back and that's how it ends but this this changes the relationship and the dynamic which had built over the previous six episodes between Elliot and Mr. Robot and puts them in a position where they're on much better terms. And it is true to the character that Elliot would retreat to this place, this place of sanctity, this place of normalcy, this place where, you know, no matter what was going on horribly in the world at the time, 
You could put on Word Up Wednesday or TGIF or, Mil- or a Miller Boyette show, and their problems would be resolved in 20 minutes. And so that's what Elliot's happy place is. That's his like sanctity palace that he builds. But even within that, there are fascinating things happening. You can't keep Tyrell Wellick out of it. You can't keep the guilt of Gideon Goddard out of it. You can't keep Alf out of it, Josh. But uh yeah, it's really, really, really uh, just uh, brilliant, like uh, just a huge swing, uh, just a uh, Mr. Robot saying, like, I am here and I am confident as a TV show and we can do whatever we want. It's an influential scene. I know I've seen other TV creators talk about how they watch other shows and say, oh, I didn't realize we could do that. Like, I didn't realize we could get away with that. Man, we're going to go all in like we Josh podcasted about the leftovers. And I know that there are some there's some connective DNA there. These people are watching each other's shows. I know. Sam Esmail as a creator watches a lot of TV is inspired by a lot of TV. So I think this is a great example of what where we are just as a is a TV watching world where we can throw this in from a nostalgia factor and the too many cooks element of it all. This is this is the world we live in now and it also makes sense in the context of Mr. Robot this is the world that Elliot would build. And again, it really informs the relationship between Elliot and Mr. Robot. It informs the lengths that Mr. Robot can go to to build a bridge with Elliot. And it informs how Elliot can be left in the dark on a lot of these things and how Elliot's guilt will still be there right under the surface and how that all plays out. So there's a lot accomplished in that 20 minutes, and it's definitely worth revisiting. And I think it also just on a on like a story moving level and, you know, just like information that you should be pocketing. Uh, And it's not like we didn't know this already up to this point, but I think it's the best example and it's the most fun example to return to if you're in a hurry to go through Mr. Robot uh, of just the the limits of uh, Elliot's imagination, which is to say there really are none uh, that he is really able to create these worlds for himself that he feels more comfortable in. And you've got versions of that earlier in the series. It's not something that he feels comfortable in, but there's the whole hallucination that's going on that we've already discussed uh the final episode of season one when elliot is in the middle of Times square and he's able to blink everybody out of existence basically and just like shut everybody down that's another good example of this yes but the sitcom sequence is a really fun way of revisiting that information that um elliot is able to really um he's it's a it's a talent that would would, if, would that we all had this ability to just really completely curate your timeline yes. uh, <laughs> right. To really, really, really be able to just curate your worldview and and see things through the filter that you want, and it's it's uh, not realistic, and it's probably not the healthiest uh, ability. It's certainly not one that you want to lean on too often, but it's something that Elliot can do. Yeah. Uh, so it's not only structurally cool to have this sitcom sequence and worth reminding yourself of just what Mister Robot as a show can get away with, but it's also cool in terms of if you want to call it a quote unquote superpower of Elliot's. This is something he's able to do. Uh, not only a superpower, but also maybe. Uh- an Achilles heel in some respects, because I believe in this sequence, Mr. Robot at some point says to Elliot, if you feel it it will feel good if you let it believing it is real makes it so. And this is a a problem that Elliot struggles with where he's not, he doesn't remember everything. And Mr. Robot does take over and Mr. Robot does cultivate his reality and he does lose time. And so it is a superpower that he's able to shut these things out and do it. But it's also a thing that's caused him problems in the past and here it's done to protect him. But you got to imagine if Mr. Robot wanted to, he could weaponize this same sort of thing against Elliot. And I think we may have seen some other elements of that throughout the show, but it's something to track that this is, as you're pointing out, a superpower that Elliot possesses that the dark side of his personality can use as a shield or as a sword. And that's something I think that I'm certainly reminded of when I watch the sitcom sequence. 
All right, uh, we'll move on to episode nine Speaking of season of two. Speaking of shields and swords, let's talk about some battles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is a twofer. We have two scenes that we're talking about <laughs> number here. Number one is definitely in play, for sure. <laughs> yeah, number one is in play, for sure. Uh, both <laughs> scenes involving White Rose. Both scenes involving the great outdoors. Both scenes involving White Rose <laughs> going... flowers? Yes. <laughs> you know, get really becoming acquainted with nature. Uh, White Rose going up against the CEO of E Corp in two very different ways and two very different CEOs. Oh, no. Set, set this up. Set up the, the duality of these scenes because I think that they're best discussed in, uh, in concert with each other. I believe we described this as make Watergate at some point. Uh, yes. And it is, a, it is a scene at a graveyard, another graveyard scene where we see White Rose uh, in, in with her assistant with, I'm not sure that character's name, but the person that is with White Rose in, in many of her scenes, her assistant, and they're in a graveyard. We're not sure what they're doing there, but it turns out they're there to visit the grave of the previous CEO of E Corp. Uh, and they're not there to pay their respects, Josh. They're there to pay something a little bit different. Uh, and that is ultimately the culmination of which is White Rose literally squatting and urinating on the grave of the previous CEO of E Corp, who she then, in, in, as, as part of that scene, talks about she basically killed this person. She created a plane crash because this person interfered with her project that she talks about. The project that we have come to believe involves the Washington Township plant where Elliot's parents, or Elliot's dad was working, the leak from which killed Angela's mom as well. Uh, this very specific, this inciting incident kind of plant thing that's very important to the meta story is talked about a lot. And this is because Philip Price is talking about shutting this plant down. This is because Philip Price is trying to weaponize this project against White Rose. And White Rose is saying, I'm inclined to take the same action against this guy, Philip Price, that I took against this other guy whose grave I'm about to piss on. So we need to talk about this is Lester Moore. This guy's name is. And uh, yeah, this is. This is awkward. This is a very, this is a lot of B.D. Wong in this scene, Josh. A lot of B.D. Wong going on here for sure. And it's great, you know, to go from that to the next scene between White Rose and Philip Price. I think that there's one scene in between the two. Um, it's, you know, it's a pretty quick leap from the from the graveyard to White Rose talking to the current CEO of E Corp. And this is like, you know, it. it we talked about this uh, during our podcasts of the show as it was going on. We talked about this in our first preview as well it really is like evocative of that like great you know magneto professor x dynamic it's just two adversaries who are commonly bonded and are uh you know are are really just in each other's worlds kind of inextricably uh really going to war with each other in a real war of the worlds i don't know who's the magneto and who's the professor x neither of these guys are especially benevolent uh you know it really is a malicious conversation that is happening here and it is the clash of order versus chaos, as Philip Price frames it. Um, and in terms of the meta story, the larger story, the most personal story of Mr. Robot, of course, is Elliot's own internal battle and his war against Mr. Robot. But that is deeply tied to the main narrative of what's going on in sort of the umbrella story of Mr. Robot, which is appropriate because there are umbrellas in this scene uh, where <laughs> there is this larger Lester war. Moore needed an umbrella. Yes. Oh, God, if only... <laughs> You know, there is there is this larger war that is happening between these. 
these two titans, you know, these two potentially yes. most powerful people on the planet, at least in their own estimation, if not in reality. Uh, and I think to, to go and just like reset the stakes of that for yourself is pretty critical. You know, these are, these are the types of moments from season two that I feel like we all need to really keep in mind is like the history that's going on between Philip Price and White Rose, because as much as we love all of the characters on the show, if you are watching Mr. Robot and it's the more personal stakes that are the, that are the moments that really reach out and grab you. And that's why you're, you know, somebody who prefers season one to season two. And I understand that. I think that you have to keep in mind as well that all of those players and all of those stories, if they aren't in actuality this way, they at least are in the estimation of Price and White Rose pawns in a larger game. Uh, you know, the, the pieces on a chessboard that are, you know, sacrificeable. You know, you can get rid of these pieces in, in the pursuit of a higher power. So to go back and remind yourself of all of that, uh, I think is fundamental as we're moving towards season three. Yeah, it's a trading places like Dynamic, where the, there are these key players that are in the background, and our main characters are just pawns in their game to an extent. And maybe our, our main characters, I mean, pawns can become queens, right? Like maybe they will advance down the board and become bigger players, but they, they think they're bigger players than they are. They're not seeing this view of the board that these two are. And ultimately, we think a, a lot of White Rose. I mean, White Rose, before this scene, as we talk about, has said, I, I killed the previous CEO. I want to kill this one. But Philip Price kind of, wins the day with this scene. Philip Price is the one who said, I will reign chaos. I would rather see you lose than win myself. He's talking about it in terms of games. And he's basically saying, like, even if it hurts me, I don't care as long as it hurts you. And he knows that plan is important to White Rose, and he knows he can use that as a weapon against her. So all of that is going on. And Price is checking his watch at the end of the scene, Josh, and saying, that's all the time I have, and walking away from the scene. So he's walking away like he's in control. And we know, as we'll talk about, I think, with the next scene uh, with Philip Price, that Philip Price is a guy who likes to be in control. And power is very important to him. And so to see that power dynamic between these two characters, knowing that it is the main dynamic of the show in the background, the meta dynamic, if we pull back. I think this is a fantastic scene to watch from that perspective. You're right. This is a very, very, very important one. Yeah, and I think that takes us to the next scene, which we don't have to spend a ton of time on because we've already talked through those dynamics quite a bit. But that's from episode 10, season two. It is, uh, I believe it's the very first scene of the episode or among the first scenes. It's the scene that leads us into the title card. Uh, and it's Philip Price and Terry Colby, uh, the great Terry Colby. The, yes, the, challenge piece, Terry challenge, Colby, the last challenge honest beast. man. <laughs> yes, yes, the last honest man, Terry Colby, the disgraced CTO of E-Corp. Uh, uh, who is uh, just a, a great broad character on this show who I don't think is utilized much beyond this scene in the season. I might be blanking on that if he has other scenes in season two, uh, but certainly limited compared to where he was in season one. Thankfully, still alive by the end of season two. So you got to imagine we're going to get more Terry Colby as we are moving forward in Mr. Robot at some point, if not in season three. But this scene is important because it's just further reinforcing um, what we're already talking about. About with Philip Price, and you're getting whether or not it's his actual worldview or just his uh, his expressed worldview to another character here. I think it's it's for me. I take it at face value that Philip Price really values the idea that any room he goes into on this planet, he wants to feel like he is the most powerful person in that room. And with the exception of one 
or maybe two people on the planet Earth, he feels that way. Uh, and he wants to he wants to bring about some sort of massive reckoning that kind of makes that fact undeniable. I think this scene gives you great insight into one of the two most powerful men on the planet, uh, or at least in his estimation, two of the most powerful people on the planet. Um, so important in that regard, for sure. Uh, I think a lot of what you're getting out of the scene, you are getting from that White Rose and Price interaction. But I think that this is kind of just a, a further volley down the line that's worth checking out. Indeed. And he says, like, I intended to leave a legacy, the standard of which was set by God when he created the earth and man in his own image. Anything less is not worth mentioning. So Philip Price sees himself as a God in many ways and wants to leave that. Terry Colby's like, what are you doing in the Congo? You're trading countries like playing cards like the Terry Colby understands that Philip Price plays a big, big game. This is a guy who is a little bit obsessed with World War One and certainly sees maps in his own office and sees the world through a very specific lens of uh, Philip Price, but Philip Price is also interested in Angela for some reason. Uh, he is certainly somebody that uh, that has some interesting weaknesses, perhaps, that could be exploited, uh, but we see him in his perhaps uh, purest, most alpha form that he wants to project to Terry Colby in this scene. So it's definitely worth revisiting as a primer on the Philip Price character for sure. All right. There's a couple of scenes from the penultimate season or the penultimate episode rather of season two, which is actually the first half of the two part season finale uh, that I know we want to talk about. Let's start with uh, I don't even know how you want to describe it. The test. What, what are we calling it? The, the land of Ecadelia scene? How, how do we want to how do we want to set this one up? Well, it's a longer scene. I, we, we know Angela, Terry Price, or Terry, as we saw, Philip Price is very interested in Angela, as White Rose has referred to her as uh, maybe his pet or his, his certain. We know that that's somebody that Philip Price has used uh, to help protect the plant, uh, protect the Washington Township plant, and worked her against the lawsuit and taken advantage of her in that way and moved her up through the ranks at E Corp and all of that. But Angela is kidnapped. She's taken off the subway where she kisses Elliot, uh, and it's uh, this very awkward scene between the two of them. She's she's indicted, essentially a black bag put into a van, taken to a weird home. There's a lot of David Lynch elements in this scene. She's given a test by a little mini Angela, but then we get this fantastic culmination of all of that where she meets with white rose after all the tests have gone through after all the weird questions and, and weird experiences she gets to sit down with white rose and seemingly talk to white rose forever josh a long time 28 minutes i believe uh, something something like that yeah we don't know we i don't i think we don't see all of the conversation oh that's we certainly the, don't we certainly yeah, that's don't. the thing that's most interesting to me is where the conversation ends what did we what what do we miss after that because where this ends of course is angela is on board with White Rose and White Rose's agenda by the end of season two. Talk about a character journey, Josh. Like she started with Gideon Goddard and working as a, as a project manager at All Safe and is ending as part of the Dark Army and all in on the hack against E Corp and taking E Corp down and has been mind erased in some way to work for White Rose and to, to, sh to show up when Elliot wakes up from being shot by Tyrell. Like there's a lot going on with Angela, but it is all played out in a small way in this scene with White Rose where White Rose talks about, like, what are, your, what are your problems? Like, why can't you understand that that was just a door? Like, a door is important, and you can, you, you know, I think doors are fascinating because until you open them and see what's behind them, it's endless possibility, and it's really lazy that you didn't try to open that door. You were only in this room because you didn't try to get out. You could have left at any time. And White Rose also talks with Angela in this scene about 
believing something and making it true. If you believe it, it'll be true. Like we heard Mr. Robot say to Elliot in the sitcom sequence. And, and, and White Rose says, we know this is something that Angela has taken with her. We've seen Angela listening to self-help tapes throughout the course of season two, especially, and really trying this positive affirmation thing where you, you, you believe something and try to will it into existence by believing it. And we've seen White Rose talk about believing that, you know, the, the concept of there being the possibility that you could live multiple lives fascinating and we've seen her living multiple lives as white rose and minister zhang so i think that's a pitch she's making to angela in this scene and it seems like it worked josh seems like it works based on where we see angela by the end of this season where she's talking to tyrell wellick on the phone she's dropping all of her interest in the lawsuit and like taking down e-corp from the legal standpoint so whatever white rose has said to angela and what i think is probably about 20 minutes i think we see almost about eight minutes of actual conversation between these two characters. It's a long stretch. It's a really long scene between the two of them. Uh, Whatever that is, is game-changing info uh, for a character who is already very mysterious and at arm's length from the viewer. And I'm actually not talking about White Rose. I'm talking about Angela, who is a character that is kind of really kept... Like, you're not fully sure where Angela's head is at throughout season two, especially. Uh, There's kind of an alien quality to her from the jump in season two once she's made the leap over to E-Corp. That has landed better with some viewers than others, I think. Um, But it's still an element that's in play that there's just this, there's this um, restricted, redacted element uh, to Angela as a character here where we just don't fully know her anymore. Um, And now that she has 20 minutes worth of potentially like, you know, series defining information at her disposal, I would expect that probably means she is just going to remain mysterious for a while. Um, And I'm, I'm wondering where that's going to take us. I've been outspoken that I don't love the whole land of Ecodelia stuff just because I don't really know where it's going yet. And it has felt to me, um, a little bit cutesy at, at points, like the whole little girl of it all is something that has just been a little, I, I just still have not fully wrapped my head around how that works out, how that plays out. But it feels like this is a really critical scene. Uh, and I think for, you know, hopefully for people who are a little bit skeptical, like me, it will be a scene that really bears out in very rewarding ways the further we get into season three. But either way, I think that this is, um, you know, this is a, a central scene where a lot of the ideas of the show are threading through even even if it's murky and a little bit ambiguous at this point, I think that this will be a scene that is worth not only revisiting before season three, but probably going to be worth revisiting a few times during season three. Yeah, the the troubling part, I think, that a lot of people get stuck on is it ends with White Rose saying, right, like, it depends on what your definition of real is. And right. we, we saw that happen with Elliot in the sitcom. And we've had reality issues in the in the context of season two, where we don't know if we're in jail or not, or we don't know what's happening. So it depends on what your definition of real is. It, it does put a lot of the episode itself into question. As it aired, we were concerned because the next scene, and we'll talk about it right away, is Elliot's lucid dream sequence where he says, mind awake, body asleep, mind awake, body asleep, mind awake, body asleep, and is trying to separate himself from reality by lucid dreaming, by controlling the dreams that he's experiencing using a technique his friend Sam taught him in grade school. So this is what's happening. And, and we see that next sequence not being sure if what we're witnessing is real or not, because it just ended with White Rose saying it depends on what your definition of real is. And we know when we see Elliot and Mr. Rose, We don't know if we're seeing real or not. 
That's the same scene we're following on the heels of Elliot and Mr. Robot browning out and showing up in the same scenes together with individual characters and Elliot not being sure of what he's seeing when he sees that. So it's difficult to follow up on that with a with a, you know, what's real with a lucid dream sequence. But I think it's important, this lucid dream sequence, right, to establish that Elliot is able to do this, that Elliot's able to step away from himself and maybe spy on Mr. Robot a little bit. Yeah, I mean, we think traditionally when we're thinking about the relationship between Mr. Robot and Elliot, it's that Mr. Robot holds all the cards and holds all the power, and he is the one who knows the things that Elliot does not know. But this scene suggests at least, and we could talk about the the other possibility of it, but it suggests at least that there are moments where Elliot can take control, and there are moments where and and beyond taking control, because we've seen Elliot rise uh, past Mr. Robot, there are moments where Elliot can be in on what Mr. Robot is doing without Mr. Robot knowing it. And I think that that is pretty cool. I think, again, I said like superpowers earlier. I think that this is another superpower to put in, uh, you know, in Elliot's corner, that he has this mind-awake, body-asleep uh, mantra that successfully detached himself from himself uh, and allowed him to spy on his worst self, on his, uh, on his more dastardly persona. Unless, you know, Mr. Robot is leading Elliot to that moment. Uh, and I think that that's the thing that's worth talking about. Like, is this actually a demonstration of something that Elliot is able to do that Mr. Robot is unaware of? Or is Mr. Robot aware that Elliot is there the whole time? It's a good question. And we don't know ultimately what's happening in that scene from Mr. Robot's standpoint. And Elliot himself is like, what, where did he go? Oh, wait, he's me right after this. So this is establishing at the end of season two that there are these... This weird, we already know about the duality between Elliot and Mr. Robot, but it plays out in a weird way with Elliot, where he's not sure if what's happening is real. And this episode ends, of course, the whole sequence, ultimately, the finale ends, and we'll talk about the last five minutes of it, with that, with Elliot still not being clear about that, and honestly taking a bullet because he's thinking that it's not real. So we don't know... To who's in, who's driving what car at what point? Like who's in control of what scene? Alf. Is it Elliot? Is it's Alf? Alf yes, Alf is driving. <laughs> e Meister, yeah, running over Gideon Goddard and saying, "I kill me." Right? Yeah, great, great, great work, Alf. Poor Gideon. Uh, but yeah, that's uh, that's ultimately we don't really know who's driving the car. Is it Elliot? Is it Mister Robot? Who's in control of what scene? So we see Elliot taking a step back. We actually hear what's in Mister Robot's head in Christian Slater's voice in voiceover. The first time we do that on this show in this mind awake body of sleep scene so it's uh i think it is establishing where elliot's head is currently at i think that's setting up what we could see for for season three which is this is the relationship between elliot and mr robot right now as we know it yeah good stuff i think that that's worth um that's worth taking stock of frankly i think to watch the full finale the full two-part finale would be a wise move heading into season three just so you're fully up to date on what the last impressions of season two were before going into season three. But if you don't have time for that and you do have time for one episode of Mr. Robot, make it the second half of the finale, which was treated as its own episode. There are a few scenes here specifically that if you needed to refine it further, I think we can recommend three different scenes that are really worth checking out again. But I think, Antonio, you and I are on the same page. You should just try and watch all of 212. You should try and watch all of 
Python Part 2. But specifically, what are the moments from Python Part 2 that are, are really worth keeping uh, keeping in mind as we're moving into Season 3? So the opening before the title card, for sure, uh, is a previous scene that we'd seen. When we talk about Mr. Robot's circular storytelling, we're going back to a scene from Season 1, which is where Mr. Robot met with Tyrell in Tyrell's SUV outside of the F Society headquarters. And Tyrell saying, don't you remember I know your dirty little secret? And Mr. Robot says to him, I think if you think about that, you'll realize that you don't gain anything by, by letting it. It's only going to hurt. You know, there's no positive to letting that out. And we know at the time, nothing. We don't know that Mr. Robot is Elliot. Once we find that out, we speculated at the time, like, man, some of those scenes would have been crazy because Tyrell was clearly talking to Elliot. And so what we see is that scene, but with Elliot in the Mr. Robot role, we see Rami Malek playing Christian Slater's role in that scene. It's great to see from that perspective. But then we go past where that scene ended. Elliot gets out of the car. Tyrell gets out after him. And Tyrell makes these pleas to him and says basically like uh, he, he recites the Red Wheelbarrow poem, which we know Red Wheelbarrow from early in season two is something that Elliot called his journal. It's the name of the book that, that was released that, that is the journal. It's on the barbecue map that we saw Mr. Robot trying to decode in the mind awake body asleep sequence. Red Wheelbarrow is a thing that is on that show and Tyrell is reciting this poem, Red Wheelbarrow, and he says it's something his father used to tell him and he doesn't want to be like his father and it's a reminder of what he never wants to become. So I think the extra additive elements of that scene, we already know the Red Wheelbarrow thing is something going on with the journal but seeing that extra bit between Elliot and Tyrell I think is worth revisiting because I think it informs a lot of what happens after that when we see later on Tyrell saying I love him like I love this guy and we'll talk about that the ending of this episode as well yeah, I think just worth reminding yourself of the dynamic between these characters, because even though Tyrell is absent for almost all of season two, he does come back here in the finale, uh, starting with this flashback. Uh, and he is somebody who you have to imagine is going to be instrumental in season three. If he had just been you know, kept in a drawer for the full season or in the trunk of a car, I guess would be the, the better way of describing it. Uh, if he was just in the trunk of a car for a full season only to be in season three for like five minutes i'll be i'll be furious i will not be happy with that uh so worth reminding yourself where tyrell is what his personal stakes are as much as we understand them which is not totally great yet this is a guy who not unlike philip price i think wants to feel like a deity uh wants to feel like one of the most powerful people on the planet i think that we have seen enough of tyrell at his weakest moments and his most pathetic moments to know that he's not in contention for that title honestly uh, uh, you know, maybe he will be uh, a co-sponsor of some of the most powerful acts in human history uh, or modern human history, at least. But I don't think that you could ever accuse him of being one of the most powerful people uh, in every single room on the planet. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm very excited to see how that dynamic plays out. And this whole episode, really, starting with this first scene, um, the work that's being done between Martin Wallstrom and Rami Malek, it's, it's terrific. Uh, so, yeah, it definitely is something that you really need to keep in mind as we're going into season three because you got to figure Tyrell is going to be a really big deal um, in this coming season. The other scene, one of the other season scenes that I know you really want to want to bring up is what you've described as the blast 
Corridor map, which of course is a lost reference, and I believe our first lost reference of the podcast. So if we had a bell, we would ding it. Um, talk to me about the Blastor map and what you mean by that. Yeah, if you were playing the drinking game for this podcast, if you were taking a shot every time we said the word scene, I mean, RIP, we're sorry that we killed you. But if you were looking for lost references, you're fine uh, until now. Yeah, this is the, the, the moth and the flame sequence where Darlene has been captured by the FBI as a result of what happened when Cisco was shot right in front of her. She's very vulnerable, very volatile. And even though D- DDP wasn't real, Josh, there is a real connection between her and DDP in that DDP knows who Darlene is. She says at some point, like, I know who this girl is. Like, this girl is me. Like, so there is a connection there between the two of them. And DDP is working Darlene. And Darlene is being treated as an enemy combatant, being told she has no rights. Uh, this is not USA. Like, this is not blue skies. Characters are not welcome here. Josh, all of that happens to Darlene. And the, that whole sequence culminates. The last scene we see of Darlene in, in season two is DDP walking her into their, their, their HQ room of their big investigation, the Python investigation, showing Darlene everything the FBI knows about F society, about the five, nine hack, about all the people that are involved, basically making it clear to her, like you think that you, you're, you can play cute with me and be clever and say, you don't know anything and you want an attorney on. We know so much. We have, you have no idea how much we know. We have everything. You are screwed. And she takes her into that room and shows her. And it it starts with them walking Darlene through the office and everybody's getting up from their desks and peeking their heads over their cubes and like looking at this person like, oh, you get the idea that this that Darlene being there is kind of a big deal. And then we see it on the map. And not only is it a great sequence in terms of staging and the way it's shot, but it also serves to remind us if we want to take uh, our time with it. When you call it the blast door map, if you want to try to sort out the meta of the show. This tells us everything the FBI does and doesn't know. It establishes who they've talked to. It establishes what they think the connections are. It establishes what connections they don't know exists, who they have and what boxes. We spent some time podcasting about this when it, when it happened, Josh. And I think that it's worth revisiting at least this scene to realize the FBI knows a lot. And they're this, this key player. Even if we want to describe it as a battle between Price and White Rose, the FBI is out there and DDP is out there and they know a lot. They've been sitting on a lot and they have built a huge case that they're going to be working in the background while these other people are going on with their conflicts between Price and White Rose and stage two. And will that be executed and all that? The FBI is on to them. And it's a bad look for Darlene. Uh, you know, bad look. Right. She's see, screwed. Yeah. Season two begins with an Alderson behind bars and also kind of ends in very similar territory. And it wouldn't shock me at all if season three is dealing with an incarcerated Darlene. Uh, I think that that's very much a possibility. What, whatever it, whatever direction it takes place, uh, it's hard to imagine how Darlene untangles herself from this. Uh, she is very, very caught up in the web of the FBI here. Um, And that's bad. That's bad. That's bad. And Darlene, uh, who I, I think, you know, in our in our listing out of these scenes, maybe we're doing a little bit of a disservice to what her emotional state is moving into season three. So just worth resetting here. She's all over the place. And that was even before she got caught up with the FBI officially, before she was actually in federal custody. Uh, that's even before she watches her boyfriend get murdered right in front of her face as she is almost murdered herself. Uh, from the jump in season two, there's just so much of the weight of the world on Darlene's shoulders um, and she's distraught 
She's in a bad way. She is in a really difficult place throughout season two emotionally. Um, and now compound that with the fact that she is not only um, wanted by the Dark Army, but also wanted by the FBI actively by both of these parties, both of these agencies. Uh, it, it, it's not good. It's not great. It's not great. And not that we're doing uh, a formal death draft as we're moving into season three, though we could if you wanted to. Uh, I do think like if you were looking at main, main characters, I'm always worried about Darlene. I'm always worried about can this character sustain all of this heat um, that is coming down upon her. And I'd be nervous for her in season three. Uh, she's she's definitely a character that I'm very worried about her her physical safety. And even if that is not something that comes to bear, uh, I just don't know how much more her soul can take. For somebody who has come across as like the toughest character on the show at times, she is also secretly one of the most fragile people on the show. Uh, and that really tough veneer is meant to mask that and much like a lot of things have been getting unmasked on Mr. Robot lately I think that toughness for Darlene has been unmasked over the course of season two and leaves her in a really really cool spot um, as a as a story in terms of the storytelling not in terms of the character yeah. uh, moving into season three for sure yeah she um, had to eat it she had to eat it real bad in this scene and yeah. she was in a tough spot as you're pointing out so it is uh, we've seen her have panic attacks we've seen her have problems we know that she's been pointed out to as one of the leaders of F society. This None of this is good for Darlene. I think the final scene that we're talking about is really, it's just like the final act of the, of the finale. Um, I think probably starting from the, the revelation of what stage two is all the way through the post credit scene, right? Yeah, it's, uh, it's just all the way through the post credit scene because it is, it's Elliot describing ultimately what the plan is or Tyrell describing it to Elliot, Elliot figuring it out. It's Elliot coming to grips with the fact that he is not sure if Tyrell is real. It's Elliot getting shot. It's basically setting up. We know it wasn't a cliffhanger. Uh, thankfully, we know it was established that Elliot wasn't going to be killed in this scene. But it is them basically setting up that this is, I mean, I would imagine the story is going to need to begin to deal with the fact that Elliot just got gut shot and that there's this plan that Elliot doesn't want to go through with, that he got shot ultimately by Tyrell trying to protect. So it sets up this conflict between an Elliot who doesn't want to go through with this plan. Stage two sounds an awful lot like stage one's plan that involved blowing up the gas factory next to Steel Mountain that Elliot didn't want to do. Uh, so this is, again, jeopardizing people's lives, blowing things up. This is not a step that Elliot's been willing to take in the past, even though Mr. Robot has. And it's a step that Elliot doesn't seem to be willing to take now, but Tyrell is willing to take and that Mr. Robot was trying to distract Elliot from and let and let Tyrell take. So it, I, this is a major conflict that we're going to have to address in season three for sure. And it's the revelation that Mr. Robot is willing to die for this cause. Like yeah. Mr. Mr. Robot is willing to let himself be in the firing line in front of Tyrell uh, and allow himself to be completely extinguished as long as the plan goes forward. That's how committed to the cause he is. All the way. This is what all the way means. He is willing to die for this war. And it's a severe miscalculation on Elliot's part, who in this final moment thinks that he's the only one in the room, uh, thinks he's the only one that is really 
real, thinks he is the only one who is in control, he is sorely mistaken. Uh, whether or not Mr. Robot is actually a real entity, he is a very real aspect of Elliot specifically. And that side of himself, Elliot has uh, wildly misjudged. And that should be um, you know, a source of remarkable tension as we're moving into season three. Then we move on from that. We know Elliot's okay. We know, or at least he's alive. I don't want to say he's okay, but he's alive because Angela and Tyrell talk about it on the phone. Uh, but we move away from that to a post-credit scene between two of the members of F Society who have been on the run. That's Mobley and Trenton. They're currently living in Arizona, living out new lives because they felt the heat of the Dark Army and the FBI coming upon them, and they needed to just get the F out of Dodge. And so they have gotten out of Dodge, but they have not been able to dodge the Dark Army as uh, Leon, played by Joey Badass, shows up at the end of this post credit scene. So the Dark Army is on the radar of these two F Society exiles who, before he shows up, are debating whether or not the toothpaste toothpaste can be put back into the tube, whether or not they can undo the 5-9 hack, whether or not they can go back and make all of that better. Um, and I think that just, if that's the final note that we're leaving Season 2 on, then that has to be very instructive thematically of where we're going in Season 3. Yeah, it's, it's going to be great. I mean, I'm I'm really looking forward to it, Josh. Like, I'm just really looking forward to Season 3, even though I'm a huge fan of the show. I I think I think it's a great time. I think it's it's it'll be fascinating to see how Mr. Robot deals with the world that we're in now and where Mr. Robot situates itself in that world. One of the things I felt from a rewatch is that just this show feels like, even though it, it felt incredibly prescient and important at the time, and even though these hacks and Equifax things and Chinese government and things continue to happen, it also feels like it was five or ten years ago. It feels like just the world is so different now, uh, and things can shift so quickly, and threats can change almost overnight, that this feels like a show that I am fascinated to see play out in season three from that perspective as well. So if you need to catch up on Mr. Robot before season three, but you have run out of time to do a full rewatch, which I mean, you know, this is, you know, coming out days before the premiere. So you've so you still have time. You still have time. You've got time if you do nothing else, but you basically <laughs> yeah, run out of time. You still have time. Come on. This is this is effectively this is the this is the the, the Mr. Robot, you know, diet version. You know, this is the, the slimmed down approach to getting ready to Mr. Robot. I think just to refresh your senses and your your memories of the show and what's important in terms of the characters and the story and just the style of this series. I think these scenes will really get you into a good spot heading into the season three premiere, which is happening on October 11th. Antonio and I will have our full recap podcast for you by Friday morning, October 13th, after we've had time to probably watch the episode like five times, I would bet. You know, we'll really dig into it and we'll try and come at you with our hottest takes, our most thought out takes as well. We're going to digest everything that's going on in this premiere. We'll have that podcast for you on Friday. There will be other content for you on THR as well. We will have interviews with the cast and crew going up. Up on THR after the episodes. On Thursdays, we'll be speaking with Cor Adana, who is one of the executive producers. He's one of the producers, rather, and writers of the show, who is chiefly responsible for a lot of the technical savvy uh, that is going on, a lot of the, the great work that goes into making this a really authentic show on the tech side. Cor Adana is responsible for and is also responsible for a lot of the Easter eggs that you are seeing on Mr. Robot. So he's going to be a fascinating person to be checking
checking in with on a weekly basis. That story will be going up every week on Thursdays on THR.com slash MRRobot. Subscribe to what we're doing here on Post Show Recaps. PostShowRecaps.com slash MRRobot iTunes. Your ratings and reviews are greatly appreciated as we are hoping to climb the charts here as we are leaning into Mr. Robot Season 3 proper. We want to be noticed. We want to be seen. We want to gather more friends. So tell your friends. We will become their friends and your friends as well. Indeed. That would be great. PostShowRecaps.com slash MRRobot iTunes. And thanks to everybody who's already subscribed or already left reviews. We really do appreciate it. Josh, I am so excited about the coverage you're going to have for THR. And I'm so excited and happy to be part of this podcast as a co-production with Post Show Recaps and THR this year. I think it's going to be great, Mr. Robot Podcasting. I'm looking forward to a great season. It's going to be fun. So we will be back very soon with our recap of the season premiere. Until then, happy binging or happy quick, you know, extreme line binging. Watch these scenes. Watch these scenes. However you are preparing for Mr. Robot, we wish you well in that effort. And we will see you when we are all on the same page with the season premiere of Mr. Robot Season 3 coming up October 11th with a podcast to drop shortly thereafter. Take care, everybody. Goodbye, friends. Goodbye, friends.